Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from verse 29 down through verse number 36. We will read the even-numbered verses together. I'll begin in verse 29 by myself, and we'll begin together in verse 30. The Bible says, And it came to pass that, uh, rather, and it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, and the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat, Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. The title of my sermon this morning is a question, and here's the question. What should a king look like? What should a real king look like? Let's pray. Help us, Lord, as we look at your word this morning. We remember back the time where you entered into Jerusalem. Lord, you entered into Jerusalem with a heavy heart, knowing that just a short week later, the praise would go to persecution. While they would hail you on one Sunday, they would crucify you just a few days later. Lord, as we consider the agony that you went through on our behalf. As we consider the lowliness that you wrapped yourself in as our king, may we be challenged by it. Or may we be humbled by it. And we may we leave here today grateful and moved to take up our cross and follow our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The political climate was tense. For 30 years, the Romans had come in and had invaded and taken control of Israel. The talk around the water cooler at work, the family reunions, and in every private corner the Jews could find involves some sort of talk of a political revolt. They were looking for a revolution. They were looking for a revolutionary. It had been 400 years since Malachi had finished his sermons and had recorded them in the book of Malachi. Since the writing of the book of Malachi, God had become silent with his people. The Israelites combed through their Torah, or our New Testament, in search for some sort of revolutionary that could save them from Roman rule. Israel, at that time, was actually under two captivities. 
One, they could see the Roman Empire. One, they could not see and would not accept, and that was the spiritual captivity. They were under the rule of Satan and sin. Now, please understand, I'm taking the moment in the introduction to talk about this. Please don't get a glazed over look in your eye. Please don't check out on me. Please uh, engage with me here, because what I'm sharing with you may not be the most spectacular illustration I've ever used or told. It may, may seem like history, and some of you, when you hear history, you just shut down. But please understand, what I'm saying to you this morning, it matters. It doesn't just matter in the sense of uh, it matters in, in history. It matters to you personally, because it is yet so applicable. In the Old Testament, in the Prophets, you find the prophesying of of the Messiah, two different prophecies. And oftentimes these prophecies are spun together or mixed together. And now that we have time to look back on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we're able to separate out these prophecies. We're able to unwind the, the, the rope of the prophecies and we're able to see clearly the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. But they not only weren't able to do it, they didn't want to do it. You see, the first type of prophecies you find in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah is a very brutal prophecy of His coming in a humble way and His execution before the people. Uh, The second type of coming of the Messiah is that of a political revolutionary that overthrows the political governments of the world and puts Jesus at the center of the throne of David where Israel will rule the world. Well, good night. What country wouldn't want total political revolution and total world dominance? Especially when it's been promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. So here they are under Roman rule and they're looking for their revolutionary. And they're reading through the Old Testament. And they realize that there is going to be a king that's going to come and rule the world and put them in charge. And that's who they begin to look for. Can you maybe begin to understand why they didn't accept Jesus? Why he didn't fit the bill? Why he wasn't quite what they hoped he'd be? Well, how did Jesus come? What did he look like? He wasn't born in a palace, no. Instead, he was born in a stable. The invitation, the invitations uh, were sent out to lowly shepherds instead of noble kings. He, he was born to peasants. Humble peasants. A bunch of nobody peasants. Nobody knew who Joseph and Mary were. Oh, we know, and seemingly half of the people in Central and South America are named Jose and Maria after Joseph and Mary. Oh, they know. They know now. But back then, nobody knew who Joseph and Mary were. They were just a couple of ordinary, regular people. Nobody cared about them. Poor, poor uh, 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 folks. Jesus wasn't born to a royal family. He wasn't born with blue blood in his veins. No, he was born to peasants. Let me pause there. He was born with royalty in his veins. The world just didn't know it. Where was Jesus raised? I can tell you it wasn't the suburbs of Jerusalem. 
No, it was the slums of Nazareth. It was the other side of town. Jesus would begin His earthly ministry, His public ministry at the age of 30. Who did Jesus choose to gather around Him? Who did He go out and choose to be His disciples? Surely He went to the finest Bible school, the finest seminary around, and He said, give me your top 12 graduates. I want to train them up. That's who He went after, right? No, He chose the outcasts of society, the Unlearned and ignorant men, Acts 4 uh, describes them as. He surrounded himself with fishermen and outcasts and he said, come and follow me. Jesus did not dress like a, a prototypical king. No, he wore simple clothes instead of luxurious robes. He spent, he slept in open fields with his head on a rock at night. Uh, he dined on whatever was easy and affordable. What should a king look like? What does a real king look like? Well, I, I be honest with you, I don't really know. But I know what King Jesus looked like the first time he came and he lived among us. What did he look like? Well, he was poor. He was a poor, humble servant. There's a song out there that is near and dear to my heart. I would love it if somebody would find this and a group would sing it as a special. Hear the words of that song. It goes like this. Who is this king who would not wear a golden diadem or a robe of royalty? Who is this king who would not take an earthly kingdom throne as a sovereign majesty? Who is this king who sits among the common man to eat? Who is this king who humbly bows to wash his servant's feet? He's the only king who had to die for his kingdom to begin. The only king who surrendered to win. He's the only king every king will bow before and sing. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. He is the only king. Who is this king who paid so high a price to ransom me with the riches of his grace? Who is this king who sacrificed his life so I could live in an everlasting race? Who is this king who lets me be an heir of royalty? Who is this king who's everywhere? yet lives inside of me. He's the only king who had to die for his kingdom to begin. The only king who surrendered to win. He's the only king every king will bow before and sing. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. He is the only king. Jesus Christ now calls on each of us to follow his example. Luke chapter 9. Can you turn over to Luke 9? Hold your place where you are there in Luke 19. Turn back 10 chapters. Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 23. Well, Pastor, I, I want to be like Jesus. Boy, that sounds so romantic, doesn't it? I, I want to be just like Jesus. I, I want to walk in His footsteps. I want to live uh, the life that He lived and and. and and, and, and make him proud, make him so glad that I'm his follower. I want to be his disciple and, and be just like him. Look at Luke 9.23. And he said to them, if any man will come after me. Okay, here are the instructions. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow 
Me. You gotta deny yourself. You gotta take up your cross. And you gotta follow your Savior. You know what taking up your cross means, right? That cross isn't just some pretty jewelry you hang on around your neck or in your house. The song says the old, rugged cross. That's a life of suffering for the Savior. That's a life of sacrifice. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's a life of joy. It's a life of peace. It's a life of great meaning and profound depth. But it's also a life of suffering for your Savior. Hey, this morning on this Palm Sunday, I want to share with you five thoughts as we consider the question, what does a real king look like? Let's jump right in there. On the back of your bulletin, you can write these down. Uh, Number one, notice the humility of the servant king. The humility of the servant king. Well, we've already looked at this a little bit in the introduction. Jesus didn't come to earth uh, born in a palace uh, he didn't come uh, uh, born to a king and a queen. He didn't ride around on a white stallion. Uh, he didn't wear uh, he didn't wear uh, a crown. Instead, he carried a staff. Uh, he was a humble, humble guy. And I noticed there that all of the points this morning will have that phrase "servant king." Let me just plug this real quick. You want to be a great leader, dad, husband. You want to be a great leader, mom? You want to be a great leader, boss, employer, manager, supervisor? You want to be a great leader of your peers around you? You want to be a great leader? Then learn how to serve. The greatest leaders are servant leaders. Learn how to serve. Boy, Jesus set that example. The humility of the servant king. Jesus is getting ready to ride into Jerusalem. His his uh, his uh, favorite, some of his favorite people are going to be there to greet him. What is going to be his transportation of choice? Look at look down at verse thirty three of Luke nineteen. Luke nineteen verse thirty three. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. Here comes Jesus, riding it on a colt, uh, probably not a broken-in colt. They were so poor, they couldn't even afford to buy a saddle to put on this colt. Instead, they threw their garments over the donkey so Jesus would have a little bit more comfortable place to sit. They sit him on that donkey, and here he comes, riding into Jerusalem, not on a white horse. No, he comes riding in on a simple donkey. A donkey. I can see the Pharisees standing there saying, he calls himself a king? Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He stopped at McDonald's on his way in here. Who eats at McDonald's? This guy. He's not living luxurious. He's not seeking fame or popularity. No, he comes in as simple as possible. But you see, humility is what the Christian life is all about. I find in my life, I find in my life this constant tug of war within me. Here it is. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So here's the cycle. I, God brings some, some circumstances in my life and He humbles me. Or I'll uh, bow my head and confess my sin and humble myself and God will begin to lift me up and my influence up. And then you know what happens? I get up high and I'm like, look at me. Yeah. Look, oh man. Look how, how hard I work to get here in life. 
And God says, knocks me down a few notches. And I say, yeah, yeah, that's right, Lord. I'm nothing without you. I'm nothing without you. And God says, that's right, don't you forget it. Okay, I won't forget it this time. Then he begins to lift me back up. And then all of a sudden, I get lifted up in my party and I get smacked back down. And this cycle continues. You'd say, Pastor, are you so stubborn that you can't see uh, how ignorant you are? Look, I'm going to guess there's a big chunk of you in here that do the same exact thing that I do. God's constantly saying, hey, listen, you need to humble yourself. Look, you're not as great as you think you are. You're just not. I know you posted to Facebook this week and you got 100, 200, 300 likes. You maybe even went viral. Can I tell you what? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You may have, uh, I, I, I have a Twitter account and I follow a bunch of pastors on there and, and, and it gives me good uh, content sometimes for uh, a filler or my sermon with a quote or, or type things. And, and i got to tell you, some of these guys, and I'm on there maybe 10 minutes a day at the most, some of these guys, I think they live on Twitter. Do you pastor a church? Because you're tweeting like every hour. And man, some of their quotes are so pristine and cute and perfect. And I think, wow, you're, you're making a name for yourself. You've got a lot of followers. You've got a lot of, you got a big name. And, and I'm not, I don't mean, I probably am, I don't mean to come across as judging them. Can I tell you that uh, it's not about building up your name or your popularity. You know what it's about? It's about Him. It's about Him. If I were to bring out a bright spotlight and I were to shine it on an object, you know where the attention goes? It goes on the object that it's shined on. Not on the light itself. The Bible says, the Bible says, let your light so shine before men. Why? So they can look at you? That they may see your good works? Why? That they may glorify your Father, which is in heaven. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. Let me read for you Philippians chapter 2 for sake of time. Uh, if you want to try to turn over there, you can. But I'm going to begin reading now. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Let this mind, or this mindset, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, listen to this about Jesus, he humbled humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus left a palace in heaven. He left a seat of praise in the greatest place in the world to become a poor, humble man so that he could die for our sins. Are you any greater than Jesus? The humility of the servant king. Number two, notice the hailing. The hailing of the servant king. Look back at Luke chapter 19, verse 36. It says, and as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, and the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, if they, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. 
Here comes Jesus into town, and boy, the people are very excited. They're laying their clothes in the way. Another passage tells us that they got palm branches out, and they're waving these palm branches as Jesus comes riding into town. And I know there's some churches on Palm Sunday that will actually give out palm branches. I think branches. I think that's a neat idea. I'm not opposed to it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But just the visual. Can you visualize that? Here comes Jesus riding down the street, and the streets are lined, and people are throwing things in the street, and they have palm branches, and they're holding them up over and Jesus is going what may have been a tunnel of palm branches as he's passing through and they're crying out Hosanna to the God of the highest he is king oh my that would have been incredible to see and then you have to have a stinker in every crowd don't you there's some Pharisees standing back there with their arms crossed. If they were in today's church, they'd sit in the back and they'd have their arms crossed they'd be slashed down I just don't like anything that pastor says well, then why are you coming to church? Stay home! Go find a church where you like the preaching, amen? And the Pharisees back there, Master, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, Guys, if they were to be quiet, the rocks would start praising me. The rocks would start praising me. And that was a prophecy of, uh, of the Old Testament. The rocks would praise me. Who was there that day? Who is there that, that Palm Sunday? Well, I, the Bible doesn't say, but can I speculate for a minute? Can I speculate for a minute who I think may have been lining the streets that day, that Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into town? Maybe some of the lepers that Jesus healed showed up that day. Possibly the Roman centurion and the servant that Jesus of the Roman centurion that Jesus had raised up. Remember remotely when Jesus comes, uh, the, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, I need you to heal my servant. And Jesus says, well, let's go. And the Roman centurion says, whoa, 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 you're a busy guy. You just say the word and he's healed. And the Bible says that Jesus marveled at his faith. You remember that story? I wonder if that man, that Roman centurion, and, and I wonder if uh, uh, his servant were there that day praising Jesus and hailing his name. Hey, I wonder if blind Bartimaeus, who he had just healed a few small verses before, I wonder if, uh, uh, if, if blind Bartimaeus was there uh, uh, praising God, running up and down the streets, passing out palm branches. I wonder if uh, Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead just a chapter or two before, a day or two before in the book of John, we find that Jesus came into town for the purpose of healing uh, um, uh, uh, Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead. And then from there, he got the donkey and rode into town. I bet Lazarus and Mary and Martha were there that day crying Hosanna and laying down the clothing and waving the palm branches. The children... The children join in on the festivities. In fact, Jesus would go into the temple and uh, throw out the money changers. We'll look at that in just a moment. I bet, and then the children would stand there and praise Him and, and praise His name right after He did that. The children were there that day. I love watching the Macy's uh, Day Parade on Thanksgiving Day. And I love to see those little faces in the crowd. They're taking in the floats. And they're just loving it and enjoying that. Or watching a child when fireworks go off in front of them. And they're... Whoa, here's Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a little child that day that Jesus came riding by? Listen, I, I have gotten to be in the presence of some really famous people. I didn't get to say anything, but you know, they just come walking by and you almost just want to reach out and try and touch them. You ever watch the athletes go into the tunnel at the end of the game and the people sitting next to the tunnel, they're reaching out and they're just trying to get a touch, a five, and then afterwards they're like, Oh, I'm not even going to wash this hand for a week. 
those children standing there, and here comes Jesus. Hey, maybe Jesus healed the, healed the ears or the eyes or the legs of one of their parents or uncles. Jesus is their hero. And they're pushing and muscling their way to the front to just get a chance to see Jesus coming riding by on this donkey. And here He comes. And boy, the hair on the back of their neck stands up. And they cry out, Hail to King Jesus! Hail to King Jesus! The children were there that day. Maybe some of the lepers were there that day. Lazarus, blind Bartimaeus to name a few. Who else was there that Palm Sunday? Maybe Mary Magdalene or the Syrophoenician woman or the woman at the well or the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Maybe Nicodemus was there. Maybe uh, Mary, his mother, was there. The former maniac of Gadara who he had thrown the, the demons out of and given a sound mind, maybe he was there. Many, many others whom Jesus had personally touched could have been there that day. He humbly rode in on that donkey. Number one, the humility of the servant king. Number two, the hailing of the servant king. Number three, the hatred toward the servant king. You see, while Jesus was extremely loved and very popular with many, He wasn't by everyone. Yes, Jesus was humble. Yes, Jesus was compassionate. Yes, He gave of His time and energy to help the halt, lame, and the blind. But mark it down, if you're going to stand for something, you will have enemies. There will be critics. There will be those that hate you. If you're naturally a critic, can I talk to you for a minute? Man, I love how everyone looks right up at me when I say that. It's like a whole bunch of people sit up straight and... I don't think all of you in here are critics this morning. But can I say something to those who have a critical spirit? They have never, ever, ever built a statue for a critic. Not once. Not once. Anybody can be a critic. Anybody can be a critic. You know, I can walk into the finest restaurant and sit down and eat a meal and find something wrong with it. But I sure couldn't go back there and duplicate what was done. I, I, you can put me in an art gallery, and I can look at the paintings, and I can tell you, yeah, yeah a little out of the lines here, and, but give me a paintbrush, and you can look like a ten-year-old painted it, <laughs> maybe a five-year-old painted it. Um, anybody can be a critic, and boy, Jesus sure had his share. You find two groups of people in this city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had a lot of tension in it for the Roman rule, but the Jerusalem had a lot of tension over over Jesus, the person of Jesus. There were two groups of people that Jesus did not tolerate. You say, well, Pastor, are we to be tolerant people? I believe we should be like Jesus. Let's let that answer the question. Who were the two groups of people that Jesus could had zero patience toward? By the way, if you want to know who is and isn't welcomed in our church, I'm about to tell you who is and isn't welcomed at our church. Jesus, Jesus vehemently opposed two groups of people in the Bible. Here's who they were. He opposed those who injure children. Those who injure children. You know what Jesus said about those who injure children? 
a millstone should be tied about their neck and they should be thrown in the deepest sea. Does that sound like you had any patience for those who injure children? If you have a propensity toward children or you have hurt children and you still think you have a desire to hurt children, you need to get help. You need to repent. You need to turn. There's a second group of people Jesus couldn't stand. Those who were religious hypocrites. Couldn't stand them. Couldn't stand them. Jesus was kind and compassionate to the drunk. He was kind and compassionate to the rebel. He was kind and compassionate to the lost, to to the needy, to the poor, to the sick, to the outcast of society. He gave of his time and effort to help those uh, that were truly seeking and religious. But Jesus took those who were religious phonies and he preached his hardest sermons against them. He called them snakes and vipers and hypocrites over and over and over again. The Pharisees were well put together on the outside, but they were vain, self-centered, and shallow on the inside. Jesus saw right through them and, and regularly called them out for their phony religion. As a result, there developed this strong animus between Jesus and these religious leaders. Look down at Luke 19, verse 45. The Bible says, and he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, if you want to read some exciting drama, read the chapters between Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his arrest. Because, boy, it gets ramped up thick. Jesus tells a blistering parable about a husbandman who is in charge of a vineyard. And the owner of that vineyard sent his servant to check up on the husbandman. And the husbandman kills the servant. And then another servant goes and gets killed. And then the owner says, well, surely if I send my own son, they won't hurt him. And the son gets sin. And the, uh, the, the husbandmen of the vineyard, they say, if we kill the son, we can have the vineyard. So they killed the son. And the Bible says, in the, in the Gospels, the Bible says that the Pharisees knew he was talking about them. He knew. They knew. They knew that Jesus was calling them out for what they were getting ready to do. Boy, it was Amping up. They were sending uh, the, the wisest of lawyers amongst them to try to ensnarl Jesus in an ideological trap. And they just couldn't catch him. And when they found that they couldn't catch him, they decided to take action and destroy him. To kill him. We've looked at the humility of the servant king. We've looked at the hailing of the servant king. Here we see the hatred developed toward the servant king. Number four, notice the humiliation of the servant king. Now, we talked about the humility. Boy, that was Jesus' choice to be humble. But boy, these men decided to take it a step further and humiliate our Savior. You know the difference between being humble and being humiliated, right? Nobody wants to be humiliated. But that's what they did to Jesus. 
before I give you an A, B, and a C, let me just say this. Jesus didn't have to be humiliated. He chose to let them humiliate him. Do you understand that this morning? I've been humiliated in my life plenty. When I was a school-aged boy, I didn't fit in. My dad was the school principal, and he was tough on kids, and they took it out on me. I've been humiliated. I've been shoved in lockers, had my head dunked in toilets. I've been pushed in showers. I've been laughed at by the rest of the basketball team. Can I tell you something? When my family came to me and said we we're moving, I was ready to go. I wasn't voluntarily being humiliated. I was being humiliated involuntarily. Jesus volunteered to be humiliated. Now, you've got to stop and ask yourself this question. Why would he do that? Why would he allow folks who are inferior to him to humiliate him? You know why? Because he loves you. You say, whoa, whoa, this happened 2,000 years ago. How do I play into it? God looked ahead in time. And he saw little old me and he saw little old you. And he saw that we were worthy of, worthy of hell. We were worthy of eternal humiliation in the fires of hell. And God said, I need to do something to salvage them. Jesus said, God, I'll go. I'll go and let those that we've created humiliate me on a cross. I'll die. I'll suffer. So they can be given eternal life. Now, somebody here this morning... You walked in the door and you thought, I'm getting into heaven because I'm a pretty good person. If you were a good person, God wouldn't have needed to come and die for you. If we're really honest with ourselves, there's nobody in this room that is truly good. Not by God's standard. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No, not one. The best amongst us deserves to go to hell. Jesus came down and said, I volunteer to be humiliated for you. Because I love you. So how did they humiliate him? As we go through the rest of this point, the rest of the sermon, I want you to remember that what I'm about to share with you was done specifically for you and me. Letter A, notice his appearance. His appearance. Turn to Luke chapter 23 and look at verse 32. The Bible says, and there were also, Luke twenty three thirty two, and there were also two other malefactors, or thieves, led with him to be put to death. 
When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. The mouth actors on the right hand and on rather and the mouth actors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look here. And they parted his raiments and cast lots. They stripped him down naked. They whipped him. They, the Bible says in the Old Testament they formed burrows, or rather furrows on his back, like a field with a whip. The Bible tells us he was so beaten, you couldn't even tell if he was a man, a woman, or a worm. Why did he do that? Why did he let them get some sort of sick pleasure out of beating him? The Romans got pleasure out of watching Jesus get beaten because they were just bloodthirsty. The Pharisees, they got pleasure out of seeing Jesus getting beaten because they hated him. They just hated him. Can you do me a favor? Can you hold your place in Luke 23 and turn back over to Isaiah 53 if you haven't already? Isaiah 53. Isaiah is the Old Testament prophecy of Jesus being crucified. By the way, when Isaiah was written, the the act of crucifixion had never even been or had not yet been invented. We see that Isaiah is prophesying about a form of punishment that would not yet even have been in place. Here Isaiah prophesies about how Jesus would come and die. Now remember I told you that there were two kingdoms of darkness that ruled over Israel at this time. There was the Romans and there was sin. Jesus came first to deal with the spiritual kingdom of sin and Satan. He'll come again one day and deal with the political. But here in Isaiah 53, we see a prophecy about Jesus dealing with sin. It says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm or the strength of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow, speaking of Jesus, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and out as a root out of a dry ground. That term dry ground refers to the spiritual climate in Israel. It was dry. It was barren. Here Jesus is growing up in Israel in a time where it's spiritually dry. He, he, speaking of Jesus, hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. My friend, if I could put you in a time machine and take you back to that day that Jesus was nailed up to that cross, we'd step out of the time machine We'd walk up Calvary's hill. We'd see Jesus there with those two malefactors. We would immediately cover our eyes. We would immediately begin to weep. We'd immediately begin to say, it is so much more gruesome and gory and awful than I could have even ever imagined. There He hung with sick-minded Roman soldiers gambling for His clothes at the base of the cross. Letter B, notice His abandonment. 
Well, Pastor, a few minutes ago, we looked at how the, the people lined the streets, the, the lepers and, and, and the maniac of Gadara and the men who were, were deaf and been made whole. How about the woman who had an issue of blood and she was healed? The centurion and, 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 and his mother and, and, and his disciples, they all lined the street and waved the, 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 the palm branches. Pastor, where were they when this Jesus of theirs was being carried off? You know where they were? They went into to hiding. Matthew 26:56 says, "But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all the disciples forsook him and fled." They left. They left. There were a few women, his mother and a couple of other Marys at the cross, and John was there. Everybody else was gone. They were gone. You know why? Because they were afraid that they were going to be put up on the cross next. They were afraid. You know, Jesus had a lot of things to worry about that day, or rather to be burdened with that day. But do you think maybe there was this fleeting thought of, where are all the people that I healed? Where are the disciples that I spent three and a half years with every single day pouring my life into? John's here, where are the rest of them? Where's Lazarus? Lazarus, I raised you from the dead a week ago. Where are you now? The toughest thing to do when you're going through a hard time is to go at it alone and feel like no one else cares. The humiliation of the servant king, let her see, notice his agony. His agony. Now, I could stand up here and take you through the physical torment step by step that Jesus went through. As I stop and think about it, it crushes my heart, my spirit. But can I tell you that what Jesus suffered that day, the greatest of things that He suffered that day, it really wasn't the physical pain. Matthew 27:45 says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth, ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. This would have been the apex of His pain, His agony, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, what that is to say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? You understand, for eternity past, God the Father and God the Son had perfect fellowship. And at that moment in time, God the Father looked down at God the Son and He saw that the sin, every sin that you have ever committed and that I have ever committed, the sin of the entire world, every deed had been gathered together and placed on Jesus. And God looked down at His Son and it so hurt Him to see sin that He turned His back on His Son and He said, I cannot fellowship with you while you are there." Jesus, in the physical agony that He bore, the social agony of being forsaken, He looks up at His Father who He loved supremely and on a level we'll never understand, and He cries out with every fiber of His being, My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? Do you know why Jesus did that? He did that for you! 
Because He didn't want you to go to hell. Greater love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friend. Now, I don't know who you are, all of you. I don't know how you walked in this morning. But my friend, if you are mistakenly believing that you're going to get into heaven by your good behavior, God does not take the currency of your good works at the gate of heaven. He simply takes the currency of faith. And you must exercise that faith right here, right now, in what Jesus did for you. I could wrap up a gift. I could bring it to your house. I could knock on your door having paid for it with my own money and say, here it is, it's free, take it. And you get two choices. You can take it or leave it. Jesus comes to you right now and He says, I bought you eternal life with my life and I'm offering it to you free of charge. And you say, yeah, but here's the currency of good works. And God says, wait, it's a gift, it's free. But, but I'm a good person. And God says, not compared to me, you're not. You're a terrible person. God says, look, I've already paid for it. Open up your heart. Humble your heart and accept it. And so many folks cross their arms and they say, not me. Nope. No, I'm having too much fun drinking my beer, living my life. I'm having too much fun, uh, uh, and, and I don't know what being a Christian's all about, and I don't want that. Well, I can tell you what not being a Christian's all about. You run the risk of dying at any moment and going straight to hell for having rejected the gift that Jesus offers you. Is that really the way you want to live? He was humiliated for you, and He offers you eternal life. And all He says is extend your faith and accept it. How do you do that? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And to believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And thou shalt be rescued or thou shalt be saved. Can you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Can you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead? Number five, and lastly notice, the heart of the servant king. The heart of the servant king. Let me give you an A to B here and we'll be done. Letter A, notice he offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness. Now, I learned this at a session I went to yesterday. You'll probably hear me repeat it from time to time. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is freely given. Trust is earned. Some of you here today say, I can't forgive. No one's asking you to trust anybody. Forgiveness is, you get to give that whenever you choose. You know what Jesus did? Jesus looked at you and I and says, you don't deserve forgiveness. But in my goodness, I'm going to give it to you if you come to me humbly. Look, look at Luke chapter 23, verse 34. I'm almost done. Look at Luke 23, verse 34. The Bible says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. I've got to tell you, my mind is blown away by this. These, this Roman centurion... He stood there and he ordered for his, 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 his men, the hundred men that, uh, that were under him, he ordered his soldiers to beat Jesus. And after Jesus was so beaten, he could only stand. They had, he had those soldiers put a robe on Jesus' back. And once the blood had dried and formed a scab on his back, they ripped it off, the scab and all. And then they, they, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they, they marched him up Calvary with people throwing rocks and spitting on him on the way. And then he ordered that they drive the nails deep into his hands and his feet. And he ordered that, this centurion ordered that the cross be lifted up and, and 
and that it fall in. The chief priests, the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders are walking by, wagging their heads and saying, if He be the Christ, uh, uh, then let Him come down from the cross. In their phony religious way. And Jesus up there looks at the centurion and the soldiers that had put him up there. He looks down at the scribes and the Pharisees who are being their phony selves. And then he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. Well, who was it that put Jesus on the cross? Can I tell you who it was? It was me and you. So I wasn't there that day. Again, let me back up. He went to the cross. He went to the cross because of your sin. Had humanity not sinned, he wouldn't have been up there. He wasn't up there for anyone but me and you. And he says, Father, forgive them. There was a thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross who humbled his heart. Look down at Luke 23, verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanging railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Are we indeed, and we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. Hey, buddy, we deserve to die. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What did this man do? He turned and he looked at Jesus and he said, I believe. I believe. You're dying for me. The, um, the sky would go dark. There would be a great earthquake that would happen. I know there's a hum in the room. But just try to pay attention on purpose, okay? After that earthquake would happen, that centurion who had ordered all that, he looks up and he says, that man is the Son of God. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to see the centurion that nailed Jesus to the cross. If Jesus can forgive the centurion who led the way in his execution, don't you think he can forgive you? I find two groups of people in the world. I find those that think they're good enough to get to heaven on their own. I find another group of people who think that they've lived such an evil life, God would never let them in. If God will let the man who ordered his execution into heaven, don't you think he'd let you in if you'd come the same way that centurion did? He just asks that you come, you humble your heart, you put your faith in him to save you. Letter B, notice this. He asks that you follow. He asks that you follow. Now, there's a whole bunch of you today, you've made that decision. I'd say the lion's share of you in the room, you've put your faith in Christ to save you. But let's be honest this morning. We're not following Jesus the way we ought to. We're busy chasing money. We're busy chasing fame. We're busy chasing some relationship that doesn't please God. And maybe we are chasing God on some level, but it ought to be stronger. It ought to be deeper. Luke 9.23, where we sort of began the message this morning, the introduction. And we'll get this verse again tonight. The Bible says, And He said to them all, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me. You know what Jesus wants you to do today? He wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. You say, am I going to have to suffer like he did? Oh, you probably won't be crucified to a cross. But you might lose some friends over it. You probably don't need those friends anyway. You might have some family that distanced himself from you. 
And that's hard. But your family did not on a cross for you. He did. And Jesus says, if you'll follow me, then I will give you a life so abundant, you'll be glad you did it. Some of you in here today need to make the decision to accept Christ's forgiveness. Others of you here today need to make a decision to better be a follower of Jesus. Which is it today for you? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. How many here this morning say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save me. I know that I know that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. Not because of who I am, but because I have believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I have believed in Jesus Christ. Pastor Lejeune, I have done that. Here's my testimony. If that's you, don't hesitate. Slip your hand right up. I know I put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. Jesus has saved my soul. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I'm just not sure that I have taken God up on His offer of eternal life. I'm not sure that I have believed in Jesus. If that's you and you're here today, I'd like to help you to do that. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, For whosoever, that's anybody, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be Saved. You can be rescued from your sin right here, like that man on the, next to Jesus on the cross or that centurion was, if you just simply call on the name of Jesus. If that's you, let me lead you through a little prayer. Now, we're not a Catholic church. We're a Baptist church. Let me just say this to be really clear before I lead anybody in any prayer. There is no magical set of words that will do anything for you. God is not looking for some set prayer to get you into heaven. He's looking for the faith in your heart. All I want to try to do is help you voice that faith. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, would you repeat this prayer after me and call on His name? Just say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know my sin is wrong. I know that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you died on the cross for me. Will you come into my life and give me the gift of eternal life? Save my soul. I believe in you and you alone as my way to heaven. In Jesus' name. If, let's continue with their heads bowed and eyes closed.